Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review every first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago, where we have uh, op-eds and debates that make fun of and critique the previous month's news. It's a great time, super fun, and yo, you're listening to a podcast version of it right now. Get excited because it's going to be good. Uh, this particular show was recorded Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017 at Cafe Mustache. Oh, please do enjoy. time oh boy it's the skewer come on again oh my lord the skewer is the monthly news review here at cafe mustache where we talk about the news of the month invariably very scary started 18 months ago when the news was like kind of fun now has a very different tenor oh my goodness my name is tom harris and i'll be your host today guiding you through uh op-eds and debates most of the people here are, will be giving said op-eds and debates. <laughs> so it's going to be my, my job to keep the energy as high as possible. So, you know, let's get started with a little call and response. Uh, if your country's been at war your entire adult life, say hey! hey! If you're feeling more and more impotent every day in the face of rising global fascism, say ho! ho! Yeah, get it. We're, we're doing it. It's going to work. Oh, boy. How about that month, right? Remember the, uh, the huge bomb? No, right? Weird. Like, if you were left to your own devices, you'd totally forget that we detonated the largest non-nuclear bomb ever this month. I mean, with actual nuclear war very much on the table, uh, I kind of get it. But wow, we... There was just a huge... Huge big bomb. Here's a fun quiz. Fun quiz for y'all. You need audience participation. What did it do? Yeah, you don't know, right? And I get it. You know, you don't have to explain it to me. Military secrets, ongoing campaigns, tactics. Can't tell the public everything. Yeah, I keep secrets. I get it. But like that was a big old bomb. A bulging, beefy boomer that blammoed the dang ground. I mean, they claimed that it was uh, to destroy ISIS's special tunnel, which, funny enough, is the way I describe sex. <laughs> which, like, okay, fair, but doesn't sound like something you need the world's biggest bomb to do. But whatever. Whatever. The weird thing is, and I'm not implying that there's only one weird thing, they never told us if it worked. And yeah, uh, you didn't hear a ton more about how super important it was to focus on fighting ISIS this month, so you gotta wonder what the fuck. Looking back on it, honestly, the biggest impact that the bomb had stateside was to be just the sickest porn to literally every news anchor and pundit. My god, you could just tell they were viciously cranking their hogs just under their desks. The most famous one, obviously, Brian Williams, talking about the beauty of our weapons. But it wasn't just him. Everyone was praising Trump for dropping a big bomb, which, like, is not even hard 
when you're the president, it's not like he had to learn to fly the plane. He did not lift the bomb up and put it in. He just said, hey, um, do the bomb. I could do that today. No prep. Just I, the bomb. Okay, sir. Done. Insane. It, it kept getting brought up as a success in the recaps of his first 100 days, when as far as we know, it served no purpose but to inject the news media with dangerous levels of horny. <laughs> they covered it like they just like found in the janitor's closet an unmarked VHS full of the world's dankest porn, and since it came from the president, they were legally allowed to show it. <laughs> People talk about the biased liberal media a lot, and I don't know if that's a real thing, but I just gotta say, as a liberal, they do a fucking terrible job of being liberal. <laughs> Had I my way, there would be one person under contract at every news organization whose literally only job was just to say war is bad. At the skewer, that person is me. <clears throat> war is bad! War is bad. <laughs> do not do it! <laughs> Quiet, Carl. You could do a war, Carl. You're special. <laughs> so I think I'm mostly going to skip the rest of Trump this month. I've done these bits before every month. They're always the same. And you, you all know what happened. You saw it. And if somehow you didn't follow Trump this month, let me assure you that, one, you have a more enjoyable life than I do. And two, it was exactly what you think. It's no surprises. Follow the script. It's, there it all is. Overtures to fascism, racism, sexism, cronyism, war being extremely dumb. They're all there, duh. So forgive me if I don't cover it. All I'll say is thank fuck that in his first 100 days, the period where he is the most support, buoyed by nigh-omnipotent GOP control of all branches of government, he still wasn't able to accomplish any major initiatives. I exaggerate, of course, because on the other hand, he has done a very thorough job of uh, just destroying everything good about America. So you're going to have to weigh those yourselves. Now, what I really want to cover this month is a piece, a rare piece of good news. And not just good news, great news. First, some background. I basically have to force myself every month to not make these openers just a straight up open call to violence. Like a, like a straight throw-your-body-on-the-apparatus type jam. Every time I sit down to write these, I look over the news of the month, I try to derive a unifying theme from it all, uh, and invariably I come up with, oh, uh, the rich must be killed. Yes. But I don't write that because, one, it's probably not a great way to warm up the crowd for the rest of the writers at my comedy show. And two, the Unabomber Manifesto has already been written, and honestly, probably better than I could do it. But this month was different. The rich have ever been a different species from us. So, so far removed from everything that we fathom as human life. So distant from our struggles, worries, and beliefs that they can't even conceive of them. A race of god aliens whose every action is quietly malevolent towards the majority of human existence and who are literally unable to be made to face rebuke for their bad actions. The only obstacle in their existence is the fact that they have to live in a mortal body made of meat, and we cannot depend on that truth lasting long. I have long ached, ooh, to see them face a trial their wealth could not overcome. Ever have I longed to see their privilege wither, impotent in the face of real suffering. 
This month, my prayers were answered <laughs> by motherfucking fire festival. <laughs> oh, it was truly a golden gift. A bright bauble left in my dang stocking because I've been a good little boy. Oh man, Santa Claus came early with a big treat for the boy. <laughs> if you haven't heard of Fire Festival, I truly envy the delicious emotion you're about to feel as I explain it. <laughs> Fire Festival was a music festival in the Bahamas, organized in part by rapper Ja Rule and promoted by Instagram boob havers. For up to $12,000 a ticket, attendees were promised luxury tents on a private island, gourmet food, and A-list lineup of musicians. Instead, it was a rocky-ass garbage beach next door with sandals. Accommodations were incorrectly set up, disaster relief tents that instantly got wet. Uh, the food, when present, was just plain bread with craft singles. Security was reportedly openly hostile and stole from the attendees. Roving packs of wild dogs menaced all gathered, and people attempting to leave were put into rooms which were then chained shut. And no bands played. <laughs> That's the part people don't focus on, but like, I love it. They didn't even have a festival. <laughs> this is literally the best piece of news I could have received. <laughs> I read tweet after tweet of these tech bros and 19-year-old millionaires as they found themselves caught in a gulag trap from which there was no escape, where food and water were just not around. <laughs> where their money meant nothing. To see them fucking crumble. The moment their luxury that they're used to slips away. Ooh, it was a grand treasure, my buds. I actually stopped reading about it because after a while because I didn't want to hear about anyone getting back. I'd rather keep it a possibility that they just all died. And if that's too far for you, maybe they just recognized the feral dogs as their leaders and they now roam the island as part of the pack. You know what, though? You know what I think we actually should do? We should just go ahead and say that they all died at Fire Festival. I mean, of course they didn't. I did eventually, you know, read. I made that joke, but I read eventually that people got back safe. <laughs> but how, we, how about we just say it anyway? For our own mental health. You know, let's say it right now. You know, guys, we're, we're an intimate little group. We're, we're talking to each other. It's just people talking. That's all this is. Repeat after me. Everyone at Fire Festival died. Everyone at Fire Festival died. Didn't that make you feel good? Wasn't that, wasn't that just a treat for you? Let's say it again. Everyone at Fire Festival died. Everyone at Fire Festival died. They all died. They all died. And if you're feeling like, oof, smiling over people's deaths, not a good look, Tom, don't worry. Because no one actually died. But, on the other hand, they all died. <laughs> and yeah, it's not factual, but like if you have faith, if you, if you really believe in here, doesn't it become true? <laughs> like, let it just be how you remember this ending. Let it stay in your mind like a jeweled crown. Make it a gift you give to yourself. They all died there. 
No one got back. Instagram millionaires spent half your salary to bop down to an island trap where they died. <laughs> Say it enough times and it just becomes legend. We've all seen Liberty Valance. When the legend becomes true, print the legend. And besides, it's the era of alternative facts. Stuff doesn't need to be real anymore. You trying to, trying to sell me some objective reality? Goddamn, that's like trying to sell me whale oil to fuel my lamp. It is not going to cut it anymore. Don't step to me with that weak ass, mm, well, actually, there were no fatalities. It was just a very poorly planned music festival. Motherfucker, there are people out there today who are going to just deeply ruin our lives with their guileless lies. Are you going to tell me, you going to really tell me right now that I can't use their tools just to make me feel a little better? <laughs> Forget about it. Everyone at, Fire, everyone at Fire Festival died. The rich can suffer. There is hope and justice in the world. I got to make myself believe it because, buddy, it don't come natural. Thank you. Oh boy, that's fun. Thank you all for being here at the Skewer. Uh, of course, we have uh, five delightful op-eds for you and then a debate, but first, before we get to that, uh, may I introduce co-producer Erica Dreisbach, who's gonna leave a voicemail op-ed of a sort. Uh, what's up, guys? Um, so you may have heard of voice, which is a really cool acronym for like violence on immigration signs and you're supposed to call um, to report the effects of criminal aliens and they don't have a voicemail so we're gonna leave hot uh, with a real operator I'm gonna talk to a real operator about a criminal alien <laughs> that I think is causing some real trouble or I mean it did 20 years ago so um, this is a very old phone, but one thing you might not be able to hear, but I heard earlier when I called, is that the woman who leaves the pre-recorded part, before you get to the operator, she says, press one for an English-speaking operator. Para Espanol, press dos. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. So, we're, so I don't want you to miss out on that because the speakerphone's pretty busted, but like, it really is like para espanol. No hablos espanol, but presses dos. And she's it's super quiet too. Okay, victims and families of criminal aliens. They say criminal aliens, so I think. Um, this is not a tip line, she says. So, uh, I might be committing a crime, you guys. <laughs> um, okay. Here we go. Press one. Oh. Oh. Oh, 
they say call back during business hours. What if there's a criminal alien? This is really such a bummer. I was gonna call, I was gonna say, hey, I have a criminal alien to report. It's Vincent D'Onofrio, and um, he is in a farmer's body. I mean, it's Vincent D'Onofrio's body, but he's actually a bug, and he's trying to commit a big crime. He's trying to steal a galaxy, and it's in, um, this happened 20 years ago, though, but like, it's still, there's no statute of limitations on um, stealing galaxies, right? yeah, and it's a skin. Oh, the skin's so super loose. Um, okay, so we can call Marlago. We can just call it. We can just call it. I'm gonna call it the Winter White House. All right, here we go. This is another crime. <laughs> All right, it's ringing. The last time I did this, they hung up on me. Hi, I'm calling the Winter White House. I'm trying to leave a message for the president. Oh, she hung up. (laughs) Sometimes in life you try, but it's just not meant to be. But the point is that we try. Anyway. For our first op-ed reader of the evening, uh, this person performs and teaches improv at I.O., does stand-up throughout the country, and produces the monthly stand-up show, A Comedy Show, uh, and has been featured in A.V. Club, Dose, OMG Facts, McSweeney's, and Reductress, and then told me you don't have to read them all like I'm so modest. Uh, Please welcome Alana Gordon. Science doesn't exist. Donald Trump is the president of the United States, and for five days in April, people collectively lost their shit over a Starbucks beverage made from whipped cream, chocolate sauce, assorted fruit juices, and radish dust. Mayhaps you've heard of the fabled Starbucks unicorn frappuccino. Uh, Mythologically speaking, the unicorn is a woodland creature characterized by its shining white coat, uh, peaceful demeanor, and a horn that can provide unlimited free health care for all, regardless of pre-existing condition. (laughs) Starbucks' interpretation of this majestic being was a fluorescent pink and blue sugar drink that left its cloven hoof print all over social media. I don't know, maybe you saw. The drink changes both color and flavors with a mere flick of a plastic stirrer and sold out at multiple locations within its first day. Now, prior to this (laughs) incredible neon monstrosity, uh, Starbucks wasn't doing super great. Uh, 2,880 of their brick and mortar stores closed this year and the coffee chain reported disappointing sales figures throughout the first half of their fiscal year, like you do. Now, the brand hoped that this polychromatic beverage infused with saccharine nightmare juice might provide the perfect diversion from their tanking business. And they were right. It totally did. Executive Chairman Howard Schultz called the drink the most stunning example of our understanding of digital and social media and Instagram, (laughs) which is business speak for humans like clicking on pretty things. And we understand this because we are professional marketing people. Please give us money. Per everyone who interacted with it, 
the Starbucks unicorn frappuccino is an insult to both unicorns and frappuccinos. <laughs> With 59 grams of sugar, 1.5 the recommended daily allotment. The drink is a nutritional travesty and its ingredients list sounds like something uh, you know fraternity brothers might use to haze earnest pledges. <laughs> the drink has driven both baristas to distraction and fueled a media feeding frenzy not seen since 2015 when Pizza Hut released their hot dog stuffed crust pizza. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment of silence for Pizza Hut's stuffed dog <laughs> crust pizza. <laughs> That seems appropriate, thank you. <laughs> Clearly, the unicorn frappuccino is a novelty drink, okay? It's a stunt, it's a gimmick, it's a marketing mess turned sentient. You know, it's, a, it's an attempt to engage consumers and increase brand awareness, and we all know that. It's basically advertising's equivalent of shouting, look squirrel, and then pulling a roadrunner and disappearing into a puff of smoke. <laughs> Donald Trump is the presidential equivalent of this, all right? He is, <laughs> he's a novelty president, a marketing stunt turned sentient. He's the Cartoon Network equivalent of putting LED signs around Boston to promote Aqua Teen Hunger Force and accidentally causing a terrorist scare level of marketing meltdown. Like the unicorn frappuccino, Donald Trump is actively bad for you. His first 100 days in office were marked by such high levels of chaos and crisis, they made Mad Max look relaxing. Now, there's not enough data to suggest the long-term effects of living in Trump's America, but if it's anything like the long-term effects of eating and drinking a Starbucks unicorn frappuccino, we're probably all gonna die of diabetes and tooth decay. Then uh, there are the mental and emotional implications of living under a leader so consumed by insecurity he established a national loyalty day. But you know who else has a loyalty day? Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, once a month, gold members can earn four stars per one dollar for all available purchases, provided they do so at a, registering, at a registered store and pay with their Starbucks app or card. So the point of all this is that people and businesses that require admissions of loyalty are probably not the people and businesses worthy of inspiring it. Starbucks needed this watercolor-infused nightmare in order to remain relevant, and the Republicans needed their watercolor-infused nightmare for the exact same reason. <laughs> Starbucks chose to release the unicorn frappuccino for only five days because, like Donald Trump, the unicorn frappuccino is not a sustainable option. <laughs> like, imagine what your insides would look like if all you consumed for four years was this. Ice, milk, Creme frappuccino, syrup, water, sugar, salt, natural and artificial flavors, anthan gum, potassium sorbate, citric acid, whipped cream, cream, cream monodiglycerides, carrageenan, vanilla syrups, sugar, water, natural flavors, potassium sorbate, citric acid, mango syrup, sugar, water, made mango syrup, concentrate, natural flavor, passion fruit juice, concentrate, citric acid, potassium sorbate, turmeric, gum arabic, blue drizzle, white chocolate mocha sauce, sugar, condensed milk, coconut oil, cocoa butter, natural flavor, salt, potassium sorbate, monoglycerides, classic syrup, sugar, water, natural flavors, potassium sorbate, citric acid, 
sour blue powder, citric acid, <laughs> color, spirulina, water, sugar, maltodrexin, citric acid, pink powder, dextrose, fruit, and vegetable color, apple, cherry, radish, sweet potato, sugar, blue powder, citric acid, color, spirulina, water, sugar, maltodrexin, citric acid. It's bad, right? <laughs> now imagine what our government's gonna look like in four years. Now much to the delight of baristas everywhere, Starbucks retired the unicorn frappuccino after only five days. But the relief was only short-lived because soon after that, Starbucks rolled out the dragon, mermaid, and narwhal frappuccinos. Yeah, it's now clear that any mythological creature can be a frappuccino as long as they believe. Just like any American idiot can be a president, provided they are not a woman or a minority and they lack human empathy and have a shit ton of money. They say that from great pain comes great art. And across the internet, suffering baristas are funneling their anguish into poetry. I think this essay can best be summed up with a quote from Reddit user, Green Like the Color. They write, blue and pink powders didn't even survive 12 hours. My hands and all of our rags are purple. I can no longer remember any drink marking or recipe other than you and I. God has forsaken us. Send help. <laughs> and they did not use any punctuation, so you can tell they really mean it. Thank you guys so much. Oh, keep it going for Alana Gordon. I like that blue drizzle is its own ingredient. Like, <laughs> like that doesn't have anything else in it. <laughs> just so they just found some blue drizzle. Anyway, move, <laughs> moving on to op-ed number two of the evening. This writer, uh, when I asked him to send me some credits and maybe like a bio to introduce him, uh, instead sent me insanely long goofer written in the style of a dating profile that I refused to read for, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, he's a very good friend of mine. Please welcome Carl Glick. It's gonna God damn it. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Ah, screw it. This month, Facebook <laughs> and Elon Musk both announced that they're working on ways to connect our brains up to computers. And I think that most people's first reaction to this is the same as mine. That's bullshit, and it's not going to happen. Apparently, it's real, it exists right now, and it actually works. Who fucking knew? <laughs> uh, there are already people, mostly people who are paralyzed. They're called brain-machine interfaces, and they can control a cursor on a computer screen with just their thoughts. It's an array of electrodes that's inserted into the brain and can pick up on electrical signals. You can train yourself to use it to type or to do anything you can do with a computer. The technology is still very primitive and slow, so what they're saying is that they want to get to a point where we can all use it, not just people who are paralyzed, and make it so good that it feels like the computer is just an extension of the body. Background information done, onto the jokes. When Regina Dugan made this announcement for Facebook, she wanted to make it clear that we wouldn't just be sending every random thought we have onto the internet. Take a second to appreciate this. <laughs> Facebook doesn't want you to post every random thought that you have on the internet. 
What Facebook wants to do is to make it so that you're literally typing as fast as you think. And that can be really good, because it removes a big barrier to communication. But when you remove a big barrier to communication, you also remove a barrier to very, very stupid communication. <laughs> now, I'm not a programmer, and I'm not a neuroscientist. But I am someone who sent a lot of drunk texts. And I am <laughs> and I am someone who's posted a lot of inane, annoying, cringeworthy statuses on Facebook. High school was rough. Also college and adulthood. And I know from experience that the act of typing something out and then pressing send can be a filter to keep you from saying things that it's a good idea if you don't say. You know, the thoughts you think are smart enough to share for about two seconds, but by the time finished typing, you decide, uh, you can type something out as fast as you can think it. You don't have time to think about what you type. It's Saturday at 2 a.m., feeling a little lonely. By the time that you remember that Jen had to stay late at work last time you asked her to hang out on a Saturday <laughs> night. And you've also had two bottles of Three Buck Chuck and probably can't get it up. You've already sent her. You, uh. <laughs> yes, I bought an eggplant for a lame visual gag. <laughs> I'm also going to cook it for dinner tomorrow. But I also want to say, that at 100 words per minute, it would have been faster to send that message than for me to grab that eggplant. And I had help. <laughs> that time you got an email from your boss telling you not to have more than two cups of coffee a day because the coffee budget was out of control, you thought about replying. Remember that you like being employed? Well, guess what? If you had a brain machine interface, you would have sent an email calling him a caffeine Nazi and telling him that they should save money by firing his incompetent ass and replacing him with a ficus. <laughs> but it's when I listen to Elon Musk talk about this that I start to get really worried. Because his company, Neuralink, wants to make it so that the BMI is completely indistinguishable from the rest of our brains. They want to move past just speaking and typing and move into sharing our thoughts and our emotions directly with other people. All of your senses, sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. So that means that when you message Jen, you're not saying, you're sharing your actual emotion at that moment. And your emotion at that moment isn't, it's, I am so desperate right now. I haven't had sex in four months, and you're the only person I can think of who might possibly want to spend the night with me. I just got back from a party, and my friend Andy, that's right, I said Andy, I'm bisexual, Andy's bisexual, it's 200 years in the future, everyone's bisexual, <laughs> was who I thought was into me, started making out with some woman, they went home together. Also, I've had two bottles of 125 buck chuck. <laughs> and I've been Christurbating my half-blasted penis through recording my brain pewter made of us having sex. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is, language isn't always able to fully communicate the complexities of human emotion. 
In some cases, it's better to keep certain aspects of your emotion out of the conversation. I want you to think back to life in 1993. If you wanted the world to know that William Howard Taft was the first walrus president of the United States, <laughs> goo 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 joob, 420 smoke weed every day, you had to go to the library, take out the T volume of the encyclopedia, white out the text of the entry for President Taft, wait for the white out to dry, and then write it in by hand. Even then, the only people who would see it were the people in your town, and they would see that it was written in by hand. So it would be pretty obvious that it wasn't true. If you wanted to send a dick pic to a woman you knew, you had to take the picture, bring the film to the store to be developed, go back to the store the next day, make awkward eye contact with the person behind the counter who definitely saw your dick and was not the intended recipient of that picture, put it in an envelope, and bring it to a mailbox. Then it would take at least a day for it to get to her house. The internet didn't create trolls. It just decreased the effort necessary to be a troll. People were sending dick pics and vandalizing encyclopedias and creating fake news before the internet was created. But now it happens a lot more because you can do all of that without leaving your house and you can make it look damn professional. And I am referring to all the examples I gave when I say that. And so just like the internet, when brain machine interfaces are, are at the point where all of us can use them, the trolls are going to have another paradigm shift. The people at Neuralink think we can create a cloud of human knowledge that all people can draw from. So you could just download information right into your brain and it'll be just like if you actually learned it the regular way. So right now, if you're on Wikipedia and you see that it says that Alexander Hamilton invented anal beads, <laughs> it might make you suspicious. When you see an article about how Hillary Clinton sacrifices small children to the gods of email servers in the basement of a pizza parlor, it might make you a little skeptical. But when the trolls can send that information directly into your pharyngeal cortex, you might not be able to tell the difference. Everything you do that anybody else sees, that could go public at any time. Ever pick your nose on the subway? All someone needs to do is look at it, and they're sharing it with their friends. <laughs> you ever have a bad day and swear at a barista? That could keep you from getting a job in five years. Your skirt flies up on a windy day? That's online. There will be so much revenge porn. If you let someone see you naked one single time, you will have to spend the rest of your life with the knowledge that that could go up with no warning. And it won't just be that people would know what you look like when you're having sex. They'll have a computer hooked up to their thalamatic lobe. They'll know what it feels like to have sex with you. How are you supposed to prevent that? Don't go outside? Don't have sex? I mean, some people will say that, but that's shitty advice. If this technology gets created, we're gonna have to accept this as a risk of being a functional member of society. 
And it definitely doesn't make me feel better that Facebook is working on this. Yeah. Facebook wants to read your mind. Just as a reminder, here are some of the things that Facebook does right now. They keep track of what websites you go to, what you buy, what restaurants you eat at, and even your income and how many credit cards you have, and use that to target ads to you. Their business model is to find the best ways to creep on you, and they want to be a driving force in connecting computers to our brains. When we have BMIs, all you'll have to do is think to yourself, hmm, I wonder if a flashlight is worth the investment. <laughs> Suddenly, everywhere you go, ads for flashlight. On the train, ad for flashlight. At work, ad for flashlight. Thanksgiving dinner with your entire family, ad for the Tenga flip hole which opens up with a hinge at the top for easy cleanup. <laughs> I know this all sounds very sci-fi, but all the technology I've talked about today are things that people working on it agree are possible. Now, it could be in 50 years or 200 years, and maybe we won't develop all of these capabilities, but a lot of this is probably going to happen. And if we're not careful, as we remove barriers to communication, we could remove barriers that maintain individual privacy. And as we learned three years ago, once we give up our privacy, as a society, we aren't willing to take the steps to gain it back. Now, with all that being said, oh my god, this sounds so cool. I want one so bad. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. You can share all the senses. You can taste food from across the world. You can learn how to play guitar, just feeling what it feels like to play guitar. You can trick your brain thinking you're eating ice cream, knock out the calories. You can control robots with your brain. You can fight space robots with your brain. This is so cool. Ah. Carl Glick, thank you so much. Ugh. Call me old-fashioned, but when I want to, when I want to jack into the net, <laughs> I need, I need there to be a hole in my head that I stick a big, a big plug into, like, fr like straight '80s style. I want that cord to be, uh, t spirally like old phone cords. It's gotta be, just no, no discussion. Anyway, our, uh, our next op-ed. Reader is a writer and psychologist. Their work has appeared in The Rumpus, The Toast, The Chicago Reader, Story Club Magazine, WBEZ, and PBS. Uh, they are a frequent guest on the Pop Culture Podcast. You don't understand that it's also my podcast. That's why I'm talking about it. Uh, they are also a member of Cassandra, a comedy troupe at Hopleaf every last Tuesday of the month. Erica Price, everybody. You guys like schadenfreude? Yeah. All right, cool. All right, cool. Uh, Bill O'Reilly's 21-year stint on the Fox News Network came to an abrupt end on April 19th amid numerous allegations of sexual harassment and ensuing advertiser boycott and pullout. Uh, in order to fully convey the cultural and political legacy of this bloviating, hate-engorged loofah fucker, <laughs> and to fully illustrate the boundless schadenfreude I feel at the news of his demise, I want to share a personal anecdote. And in order to deliver that anecdote, I'm going to evoke a very Bill O'Reilly phrase, one you hardly ever hear outside of conservative circles these days. Before 9-11. <laughs> Before 9-11, 
My mom was a political apathetic, and I was an 11-year-old nose picker and aspiring bat biologist. Uh, yeah. Uh, my, my mom was conventional and religious, but she, like, kind of supported abortion rights and disliked the easy accessibility of guns. Her favorite news programs were The Today Show and Entertainment Tonight. And my only political view was that people should wear seatbelts and only flush if they'd gone number two. <laughs> but when I came home from middle school on September 11th, 2001, I found my mom sitting in her recliner, staring ahead blankly the way she only did when somebody died or if I was in trouble. And Fox News was on the TV and the Twin Towers were falling on an unceasing loop layered with unhelpful commentary. At 8 p.m., the O'Reilly factor cut through the din, and a calm, collected bill demanded the swift capture of bin Laden. A guest sputtered that the Taliban had, quote, unleashed the dogs of war. After that, Fox News was on constantly in our home, and the O'Reilly factor became appointment television. On a network filled to bursting with conservative perspectives, Bill O'Reilly stood out for his seemingly clear thinking, intellectualism, and cool temperament. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> My mom, corn-fed on Midwestern politesse, could not handle the screaming fights of Sean Hannity and Alan Combs, couldn't get past the dripping double entendres of pervy Shepard Smith. O'Reilly was measured and thoughtful in comparison. He taught his viewers new vocabulary words, things like versimilitude and boondoggle. And he sold tote bags with the words and the definitions on the side in crimson script. O'Reilly read books sometimes and ended his programs with careful, snarky, smart essays about the perils of political correctness and the society upending implications of gay marriage. He provided my mom with what passed for intellectual stimulation and comfort, like a challenging but respectful father figure. He would report, she would decide, and she would always decide he was right. <laughs> Uh, so I received a constant stream of conservative Rupert, Rupert Murdoch-sanctioned opinions uh, that rankled me, and I quickly began to define myself by opposition to them. Uh, on January of 2002, I sat with my mom in front of Fox News and watched Bush's State of the Union. Anti-terrorism and war was bandied about. A gay marriage amendment was mentioned. O'Reilly came out in vociferous, self-assured support of both. I stood up and ranted at the television and my mom had swirling with a fury, like despite total lack of political knowledge. I didn't know I was like any kind of queer or anything, but attacks on queer people always and immediately jabbed me in some unseen, very sensitive nerve and made me feral and full-throated with rage. My mom would tilt her head to the side and watch these rants and give me a pacifying, I can see why you feel that way. But she could see why people felt the opposite way too. She was nothing if not fair and balanced. <laughs> this defined the tenor of all future political disputes in our home. My mom did not believe in arguing her position. As hours of Fox News drew her focus and slowly morphed her beliefs, she never risked telling me that Islam was evil or free speech needed to be curtailed or gay marriage was wrong. She would simply say that people deserved to believe what they wanted and that fighting about such things wasn't polite. My frustrated adolescent pleas to be seen, to be accepted, to receive empathy were one side of the debate. Fox News was the other, so she balanced me out every night. When I figured out my own, while I was figuring out my own beliefs, Bill O'Reilly was experiencing unbidden revelations of his own. A video from early in his career surfaced. In the clip, a younger, chestnut-haired O'Reilly doesn't understand a phrase on the teleprompter. <laughs> Play us out. He asks someone off screen, what does that mean, play us out? 
Then he explodes into screams of, fuck it, we'll do it live, we'll do it live. His face transforms from its typical confident, thin-lipped smirk into a roaring, blank-eyed maw. I showed this clip to my mom, hoping O'Reilly's verbal abuse would remind her of, our, of my dad's rants and make her see that he was an asshole with no capacity to recognize his own wrongness. But she didn't say a thing. There was always another side to the story, an unbiased perspective that my angry, progressive self couldn't see. I became political. I joined the debate team and made it to nationals, having learned from O'Reilly how to package my opinions in faux intellectualism and punchy, persuasive charm. I co-founded my school's Gay-Straight Alliance. I got in trouble for interrupting lunch periods, grabbing a microphone, and giving speeches about the annual cost of enforcing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. <laughs> it was really cool. Uh, sometimes my mom would get quiet and pointedly ask me if I had something to tell her. <laughs> but she radiated relief every time um, I demurred. Our house wasn't a safe place to figure out you were any kind of queer. It wasn't a safe place to cry about being threatened with a beatdown and called a fucking dyke in the school showers. It was a no-spin zone. <laughs> so I stayed out of the house as late as possible, going to like student congress and other very cool things like that, uh, and driving surreptitiously to trans support groups at the Gay and Lesbian Center of Cleveland. Um, I applied to go to college in Ohio's liberalist, gayest city, and I drank in friends' basements and puked in cardboard boxes in basements, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Bill O'Reilly was being sued by a former producer for a series of sexually explicit and harassing phone calls. Again, damning clips surfaced. In the phone recordings, O'Reilly whispers lasciviously and tells his then-producer to use her vibrator to blow off some steam. Then he instructs her to insert a loofah into her cervix. At one point in the tape... You guys don't remember this? Oh my god. At one point in the tape, he forgets the word loofah and he calls it a falafel or whatever. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> Again, I delivered this news to my mom. She seemed nonplussed. O'Reilly settled out of court two weeks later and his ratings went up 30%. I went away to college and started bumming around with a bunch of anarchist lesbians and trans people and started blogging about politics. When I spoke on the phone with my mom, I gave her an anodyne account of my life, all like grocery shopping and grad school applications. We both defaulted to Midwestern denial of the chasm that separated us. Uh, she ignored my public loud coming out posts and kept using my old pronouns and I acted like I didn't notice. Uh, Fox News for over a decade, knew for over a decade that one of their most famous broadcasters was a rapey piece of shit, but they acted like they didn't notice. The falafel lawsuit happened back in 2004. For 13 years, they overlooked it, happy to shellac over the cracks in his weary visage and accept advertiser revenue and cuts of his numerous book sales. It took a barrage of sexual harassment reports voiced by five different women and the loss of 21 sponsors in April for Fox to decide O'Reilly was tainted. Once the network determined he was a liability, an internal investigation uncovered scores of additional threats, enticements, and nasty comments on his part, some of which had been reported years prior and then I guess put in the circular file. It took the election of Trump to shock me back into confronting my mom about her politics. After years of choosing the easy way out, I could feel the rights and safety of people I love on the chopping block, and suddenly I was a teenager again, foaming at the mouth and crying for her to understand, and she was her same self, placid in her easy chair, expecting me to stop being so emotional and respect her right to disagree about basic humanity. Conservatives loved to use September 11th as a reference point. 
It was a line in the sand across Rubicon that excused them from, for unleashing all manner of Islamophobia, jingoism, and moral traditionalism. And I understand the appeal of such lines because I see my, li my life divided up into similarly stark eras. Before Fox News, after Fox News, before Trump, after Trump. Some decisions cannot be revoked. Some canyons cannot be broached or sealed back up no matter how many layers of TV anchor makeup you shellac on them. My initial reaction to O'Reilly's firing was to dash around my apartment yelling delightedly that my nemesis had been killed. <laughs> that this man who taught my mother to hate me would probably die of a heart attack soon. That eventually all my enemies die. felt good to imagine him withering, perishing alone, meeting retribution for his decades of lies and hate. It felt like being right. It felt like unleashing the dogs of war. Thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you Erica, that was fantastic. Erica, fun fact, was the skewer's first ever performer way back in the olden days, pre-Trump when everything was good and hope was real. We, we could do anything if we just believed. But our next, uh, we're, we're, in, we're in hell now, let's just make sure that that's clear. Um, <laughs> our next writer is a writer, comedian, and artist. She has a weekly column called Just Being Funny in the Daily Herald Weekender or on her blog, if you want to look at it there. Uh, she, is she performed on and co-produces The Stoop, a fan-fucking-tastic storytelling show. One of, like, the top three in Chicago, no doubt. Go do it. Um, and she also pays the bills as a creative project manager. You can see more on onesiamuller.com. Anisia. brought out all the emotions. God. So much news. Any whores, today <laughs> I would like to take you from snarking and trolling and help you transform your life. Welcome to Juicero 101. <laughs> he was on a treadmill and wondered, what can I do that will have the greatest impact on humanity and human health. I was in my bed wondering, what can I do to have the greatest impact on the skewer's audience and wealth? <laughs> well, Juicero 101 is a masterclass on creating sticky, viral products and services that will attract big dollar investors and guarantee you 15 minutes of fame and early retirement. I'm your coach, Onisia Miller. I have 10 years of internet trolling experience. I've watched over 50 seasons of Ratchet Reality TV, and I have invested a total of zero dollars in business webinars and pyramid schemes. All right, so we have seven points into this uh, seminar. I hope you have your smartphones or pen and papers ready. Okay, so lesson number one. A true salesman does not solve a problem. Instead, they create a problem to solve. Quote, 
People love juicing, but no one wants to actually go out and buy the produce, make the juice, <laughs> clean the juicer. And then secondly, the cold press process was this ancient process being used for thousands of years where it was basically like how you make wine. You know, I never realized that juicing was an issue, but you know what? Juicero sold me. So, solving a self-created problem is as old as time. Don't believe me? Think about drug dealers. They get you in with that free sample, and then you get addicted, and now they have repeat customers. Now, it doesn't always, it can be more classy. Let me do this one for you. What about employers? Constantly changing job titles to match trending keywords. I mean, really, what is a social media manager? Like, is that not just a marketing manager? I don't know, right? So they create these new job titles so that you gotta get that higher education. And once you got that higher education, you need work experience. So even if my mom had a marketing degree, she don't got no social media marketing degree. And then you lock them in with that unpaid internship. Lesson number two, know your customer. Quote, investors are very intrigued by businesses that combine one-time sales of hardware and that end up leading to repeat purchases of consumable packages. So, you thought you were Juicero's customer. Wrong. Juicero's customer was actually Silicon Valley's um, investors, VC. Well, what, I forgot what VC stands for again. <laughs> yes, thank you. Venture capitalists, right? They're not looking for little, little Midwesterner people to sell to. No way. Now that you know that Juicero wasn't for the market, the only thing being juiced here is venture capitalists and not fruits. <laughs> Step number three. Shoot your shot, boo. Sin vergüenza. Haste loca. If you don't speak Spanish, that means sin vergüenza, be without shame, balls out, right? And haste loca, just be crazy, you know? Quote. Google's venture capital arm and other backers poured about 120 million with an M, like Muller. So you're gonna <laughs> invest in this course. I won't charge you millions, but invest, right? In making a machine for $400, plus the cost of individual juice packages delivered weekly. Now, you probably will never be in a room with a millionaire. But if you do, you have one chance, one chance. Why settle for a measly $1 million scam when you can get $120 million? Money, money, money. Listen, Juicero knew it, would, knew it would only be on the shelf for a hot minute. So if you can grab cash, why not grab cash? <laughs> See what I'm saying? And now, more importantly, because he knew they were a scam product and we live in an Instagram society, imagine how many more juiceros they sold to rich Instagram influencers who wanted to be trending. Pfft, money, money, money. <laughs> Anyways, 
Number four, we're at the halfway point, people. So I want to just <laughs> plug my website one more time, onisiamiller.com. You can get all your business and scamming advice. Okay, so number four, find your scam niche. There's always room for one more. This market is not saturated, y'all. Quote, there's a lot of juice going on in San Francisco, and now it's sort of spread like a virus across the United States. Avoiding the Midwest, of course. So we live in the Midwest. So we, like, we thought Juicero was for us. It's not for us. It's for those in the fancy Silicon Valley. And I want to, like, bring to you another example. So I was working in the Adler, minding my own business, when these two tech bros were, like, talking business instead of paying attention to their kid. And one guy said, yeah, dude, like, First of all, rule number one is never invest your own money, right? So you always got to get those venture capitalists to come in there and give you that startup money. And then he was like, rule number two, I'm thinking about going back to India because, like, India is really hot right now. All the farmers have money, and they just want to invest in tech because it sounds like something cool to say across the table. They don't know anything about tech. They're just investing. So... While Silicon Valley may be out of our reach, I would like you to know that India has a lot of farmers with money looking to invest in shit. So, you know, just, you know, find your market. There's always room. Number five, inception. Your scams gotta have a scam. Quote, the device also reads a QR code printed on the back of each produce package and checks sort the source checks against an online database to ensure the contents haven't expired or been recalled, the person said. And then to pull back from quote number one, the one-time sale of hardware that ends up leading to repeat purchases of consumable packages. Why does a juicer need Wi-Fi? Anyone have any guesses? Hmm? No? I'll tell you why, because the scam wasn't just overpriced juicing, right? The scam was hooking people to be repeat customers. They were creating a way to collect data and sell it to the venture capitalists for future ventures, right? Think about it. They want to tell you when your juice is expired. Bitch, I know when my juice is expired. <laughs> they want to tell, they want to automate when you get your juice. Like every week, they're like, Cindy, you don't want to fall off the juice wagon. You were going good for like 10 weeks. And then they want to tweet it on Facebook. Hey, Facebook, Cindy didn't drink her juice last week. You got to tell her get back on that juice lab. Mm -hmm. Anywho's, I feel like this was a legit reverse Avon, reverse multi-level marketing scheme. Like instead of getting you to get people to buy more products, they just kind of get you to get yourself to buy more products. Um, take notes, take notes. Um, let's see, number six. Don't let anyone profit off of you. If they make money, you make money. Know your value. Quote, Kippy Williams, love that name, owner of Kippy Organics, Owner of Kippy Organic Non-Dairy Ice Cream Shop. Well, that does not sound like fun. Uh, in Los Angeles and Tokyo. Said she purchased her Juicero late last year for $1,200. Why? 
because Juicero charges businesses a premium. So, if you live in Silicon Valley, we're just gonna up the Juicero, and then we're gonna add like a third world slash Midwestern price to just like three installments of $29.99.99. I don't know how big that number is, but just three installments, you know? <laughs> Tip number seven, never show your hand. Quote, when we signed up to pump money into this juice company, it was because we thought drinking juice would be a lot harder and more expensive. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. They thought they were investing in an apple-looking juicer. When all is said and done, when all the jokes have been made, what if this was all a guerrilla marketing scheme to get people to buy the juice packs and not the juicer? Think about it. What if Kim Kardashian's sex tape was a guerrilla marketing scheme to sell us more Kardashian? And it was never like, oops, you know? <laughs> Here's a bonus tip because all good webinars, this is not the web, this is real life, all good, <laughs> Workshops come with a bonus feature. So tip number eight, cover your legal. Violating Juicero's terms and service, which specifically tells you that you will not directly or indirectly defeat, bypass, or otherwise circumvent any security or other authentication features. So I will do, this is my workshop, to guarantee you to make sticky products that will attract a lot of money from rich investors and all those other early retirement clauses and then I'm put asterisks. I am not a sales and marketing expert. Thank you. Once again for Anicia Muller. earlier I was I was thinking I was so clever saying the rich were so bad but now that Anicia's course has shown us how to make millions I think being rich is actually good <laughs> okay so um, our last op-ed reader for this evening before the capper the debate our last op-ed reader performs improv with Devil's Daughter Tuesdays at 10.30 at I.O. Does more improv just all over the, all over the place, all over the city. Uh, and she is currently in a play called either Hookman or Hookman. Uh, Hookman is because you think you got a hook, whatever. In a play called Hookman at Steep Theater, which runs until May 27th, please welcome Mary Tilden. Okay, um, is anyone here from the South? No, okay, um, I am. So <laughs> I will be telling my um, op-ed from that perspective. Um, okay, so last month a federal appeals court ruled that New Orleans officials could finally begin removal of the Confederate monuments that are littered across the city. Um, these statues include a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee, um, the Battle of Liberty Place Monument, which is a giant obelisk that uh, commemorates the White League and their insurrection during the Louisiana uh, uh, Reconstruction, 
And it, uh, what else? A monument to Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, and a monument to General PGT Beauregard, who was a general for Louisiana in the Civil War. So um, it's 2017, and those are finally allowed to be removed. I just want you to breathe about that for a moment. Um, so I am a native Southerner, and um, my words on this movement are thank fucking God, or in a way that um, my ancestors might understand, thank fucking God. Um, so it's about time. These statues were, most of them were erected around the turn of the 19th century and um, are literally putting slave owners on pedestals. Um, however, despite the federal ruling, a lot of citizens in New Orleans are currently fighting back on this ruling. Um, and today, a bill to stop these Confederate monument re removals passed a committee in the House uh, to the full House for debate. Uh, what committee, you might ask? This committee is called the House Committee on Municipal, Parochial, and Cultural Affairs. Um, so when I first read this, I was like, what does that mean? What are those words? So um, <laughs> uh, mainly I needed to look up parochial because that's just not, I don't know that word. So <laughs> and I'm just being really transparent about that. So, um, uh, so parochial is of or relating to a church parish or narrow or limited in range or scope. Yes, but it's for a joke. <laughs> it's, it's totally fine. Thank you, though. Um, but anyway, one of the meanings of parochial is that it is limited in range or scope, so my joke is that at least they know they're being petty. Um, yay for that joke. Um, so, uh, so one of their representatives, um, Thomas Carmody, said, was quoted today in the paper as saying, this measure was an effort to make sure those person's sacrifices are not just randomly tossed away into the ash bin of history. Okay, so I want to break down that quote because that's like really in interesting to me. So um, when Representative Thomas Carmody says those person's sacrifices, he's speaking of Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, and the White League, who um, <laughs> I guess, I, like I don't, I mean, like so they fought for things, but they were... Um, actually fighting so that they didn't have to sacrifice their slaves and their property. So um, that would be like the opposite of sacrifice in my mind. Um, so uh, also Representative Tom, or Carmody is worried about the so-called sacrifices being randomly tossed away. Um, we've had like a hundred plus years to talk, think about it. So I don't like it. Doesn't feel very random to me per se. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put that word in there. And then also the ash bin of history. Like I didn't call it that. You did. You know what I mean? Like that's your words. And um, and and like. You, you and your friends are the ones who hired a dude who thinks Frederick Douglass is still alive to be president. 
and who also claims that Andrew Jackson would have stopped the Civil War even though he wasn't alive for the Civil War. Um, so you are the one that thinks history is an ash bin. Um, and I would like to argue that literally a bundle of radishes with historical facts taped to it would be more informative than our current president. Um, <laughs> so I believe that these monuments should definitely come down. The shit needs to come down. So, in place of each of these monuments, I believe that the New Orleans government needs to leave free digital downloads of the movies Get Out, Hidden Figures, and possibly the series Dear White People. And while these may not be all historically factually accurate, I'm going to say that we have some room for overcorrecting in the South. Um, <laughs> Uh, next, there's some other symbols of white supremacy that need to be taken down, and um, I'm like, let's all do our part and start small, shall we? So I would like, um, I request that my mother um, take down her Alice Ravenel Huger Smith painting from the wall in the foyer. Um, I've said it once, and I'll say it a million times, Mom. Those paintings are pretty, but they are impressionistic paintings of slave plantations, and they wholly romanticize slavery to look like the way rich white ladies wanted it to look. Um, we cannot hold our history up to our ear like a seashell and lie that we hear the fucking ocean anymore. That's not the ocean, it's the deafening silence of truth. And it was not the war between the states, it is the Civil War. And it wasn't a war for states' rights, it was a war about slavery. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, another thing to put an end to, I'm just gonna say this, plantation weddings. Um, <laughs> don't do that shit, don't go to them. <laughs> um, I don't want to have fun and dance on a southern plant plantation. Um, so y'all, don't invite me to your southern plantation weddings. Um, no one here is southern, so I'm, you know, preaching to the choir, but uh, I hope that my friend Grayson can hear me. Um, <laughs> um, while we're at it, I would like to go back to South Carolina and remove the statue on the State House grounds of J. Marion Sims. Does anyone know who J. J. Marion Sims is? No. So, J. Marion Sims is a physician known as the father of modern gynecology, um, who used enslaved women as experimental subjects and. Um, in the place of that monument, I'd like to leave, I don't know, accessible birth control options. Yeah. <laughs> um, why does gynecology have a father? <laughs> um, so the truth is, I grew up under the shadow of the Confederate flag in South Carolina. Um, and two years ago, when I watched Bree Newsom scale the flagpole and remove it herself, I cried. And I wish I could say that I was crying for the hope of, like, progress in South Carolina. Um, but I, if I'm being totally honest, I was crying that it took so long. And I was crying for my complacency as a citizen and because I knew I hadn't felt strongly about race as a child because my family didn't feel strongly about race. Because in the South, it's not something you talk about. Um, it's something you quietly feel guilty about. Um, but I think that 
Um, and this is something that I, I do talk to my family about, so um, at least that megaphone is being blasted into their faces. <laughs> but um, that we don't have time to feel guilty anymore. It's just time to get this shit down and start talking. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much to Mary Tilden. Come on, another one. Another one. Before we get to the before we get to the debate, there's some things I want to bring up. One, I want to thank Cafe Mustache as always for hosting us. Being a great venue. Buy drinks from them. Give them your money. Uh, speaking of giving money, we have a donation bucket out there. If you didn't, if you didn't see it on your way in, you put a dollar in there, it'll go to our delightful writers who've made, made stuff for you to listen to. Cool. Also, we have Skewer merch. We got some nice books that are the best writing from the show in 2016. We got some stickers and pins. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> so... Before I, we go on to the debate, I am going to leave a voicemail op-ed. Mary, you talked about preaching to the choir. Oh, man, are we going to echo this chamber tonight? Because I'm calling the DNC. So they're gonna, there's going to be a lengthy-ish message, but they have a functioning voicemail, and hopefully they don't cut me off after 10 seconds, because that's happened to me a lot. Let's get this on speakerphone. Come on. Thank you for contacting the Democratic National Committee. Our telephone reception hours are Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Our phone number is 202-863-8000. Yeah, I like know. You to leave us a message, send us an email at info at democrats.org, yeah, yeah. or visit our website at democrats.org. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, Simply hang up or press pound for further options. Hey, uh, DNC. Hi, my name is Tom. I'm in Chicago. I just want to uh, ask you, please don't fuck this up. Um, <laughs> you really have a great opportunity here. Please give the people uh, what they want. What they want is to not be hopeless wage slaves and then die. Um, the GOP is really trying to make us die. Please, just like push single payer. You know, their G GOP is trying to kill us. It's very easy to sell single pay payer because everyone wants it. Please don't fuck this up. It really seems like you're gonna. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> anyway, so that's gonna get deleted because I used a swear word in the first sentence. <laughs> Anyway, on to our debate, the skewer debate, the capper of the night, where we have two writers come up on stage and debate the most contentious topic of the month. Someone needs to figure out what's at the bottom of it. It's going to be you people. You're going to vote who's the better debater, who made a better case. So who are our debaters tonight is the question. First, debater has been writing and acting in Chicago since 2006, is the artistic director of the stage horror company Wild Claw Theater, is the host of the same theater's Death Claw, or rather Death Scribe, Death Claw is from Fallout, uh, a festival of horror radio plays. He also performs satirical op-ed essays every week as, Ch at, uh, as Chad the Bird at Paper Machete. What's that? Who, who cares about that show? It's nothing. Uh, Josh Zagorin. Woo! 
so this is uh, uh no, we, no, 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 going yet? Okay. no, no, I gotta bring debater number two. Sweet, debater number two is a comedian and producer of the stand up showcase. Congrats on your success. A truly, like, deeply good show that you should go to the first Thursday, or yeah, the first Thursday of every month, a date better known as tomorrow at Uncharted Books at the Lone Square Blue Line. Not like 10 minutes walk away. Uh, Sonal, they're right there, fuck. Sonal Agarwal. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I'm watching you. I got you. So the way this works, both of our debaters are going to deliver five-ish minutes of opening statements on their topic. I'm going to come back on stage, ask them questions. They're going to be very stupid questions. They're going to have to make up answers to them. And then they're going to have one minute to give their final closing remarks. And y'all delightful people decide who is the victor. Uh, this month, our debate topic is, as we've all seen, uh, this month airlines got extremely violent towards their, uh, towards their customers, which I think is a completely apt reaction to being a business in the Trump years because it's just reflecting the world we live in. The debate becomes then what is the next industry that should follow the airline's lead and become just openly, violently hostile to their customers? Sonal, what are you going to be debating for? I am debating on behalf of, uh, this will be a very inspiring battle indeed, into violence, down we go. Hey, hell's pretty good in here. You guys are real cozy. I'm being tickled by the flames. Uh, I will be defending startup companies and the gig economy. Uh, internet service providers. Right, well, I would like to say that if the people that provided the internet did in fact rally together, we would be extremely fucked. <laughs> I mean, it was only a few years ago that we were all there like, oh, I printed the directions. Did you guys print the directions? <laughs> I printed the directions. Now, I'm pretty sure people that go to work and come home from work every single day have no idea where they're going <laughs> without Google Maps. But anyway, uh, I'm not on his team. I'm on my team. <laughs> I'm on my team for startup and gigs economy, which is funny because when I read startup, I kind of thought of Kickstarter. So I was like, oh, let's get the people together and get like some sort of cool album going where you get like a bonus gift with pins and a tote bag or something. If you uh, sign up for the revolution, you know, I must say that this is not a moment that we didn't see coming, right? You guys know about the Kali Yug? We are entering the Kali Yug. That's right. In the Hindu conception of time, whatever that is, we are inevitably entering a period of darkness. A period in which, sure, we got a guy. His name is Donald. He's the King Cheeto. He's the king of the biggest reality TV show. We are living in a country where, fine, he wants to grab some pussy, whatever. I'm pretty sure all the presidents did that. But did he have a band of white women defending him and his actions? Did you not see any of these videos? Women in the front oh, yeah. Where they're like, it was locker room talk. Like, that's kind of okay. Oh, no. It's time to get violent. 
it's time to rise to action. And uh, I guess the way that we're going to do that is through uh, the gig economy. That's like us. We are the gig economy. We are the gig economy. We're going to do a Kickstarter. And we're going to have like this epic band and an album come together. And we're going to give away tote bags because people love free gifts. And if we get to express ourselves violently, as long as we can direct that violence, you know, that's not something, just as the compassionate rivers of love must flow, so must the lava of the volcano erupt ferociously to birth new earth, is what I'm saying. So, you guys on board? We're gonna, we're gonna, I don't, there was a time before the internet, we will return to the earth, We'll be fine without the internet. I don't know how we're going to do the Kickstarter without the internet. Maybe we could go back to snail mail. We'll work out the details. I'm just saying, startup companies, that's us. We're the gig economy. We're going to do this. We're going to get violent, and we're going to make America great for uh, before, like it was before. I don't know. It's all very confusing time, but I'm ready to get violent. I'm ready to get a Kickstarter together about it. So usually a peaceful person, Fuck that, let's do this. All right, Team Gigs Economy. Okay, uh, first to admit it, we are fragile creatures. None of us want to get our asses beat. That's just not in our nature. That's why we're programmed to go nuts when threatened because nobody likes being in a fight. We like winning. Fights, we like watching fights. That's our nature. But if that's how it's going to be, then eventually somebody's going to get their asses beat. That means that one of us is probably going to get their ass beat from time to time. And if it's my turn, I'd prefer to get beat up by something larger than myself. The biggest and therefore most undefeatable smackdown you've ever YouTubed. Otherwise, what is the point of it all? We like winning and watching, but eventually that's going to be you. And if you get matched with the biggest, most insanely powerful, well then, people, that's a fight to be proud of. Because nobody else wants it, and you got stuck with it, so you might as well go down like a hero. And if it's just a run-by nut punch, you're going to be bummed. And that's how it is with internet startup companies. Popping up, here and there, coming, going, never holding on, never staying. Pandora started in 2000. It's only been 17 years, and that's not even the oldest one. For every YouTube, there's a pseudo.com. For every Peapods, there's a Cosmo.com. For every Spotify, there was Napster, LimeWire, and Audio Galaxy. We're not children here. Children kick each other and want away. We are adults, so we deserve solid old-world galaxy-smashing beatdowns if we have to take one. So if I, uh, if we, <laughs> so we have to, you know. So if it's up to the customer service, it, it's going to get really funny in a second, and that's because this part made me laugh. So if we have to, and it's up to the customer service's stakes, up to the Trumpocalypse, let the gods come for me. Comcast with over 17 million subscribers, 148.2 billion net worth, swallowed Time Warner in an epic Lovecraftian sea beast. AT&T, $126.72 billion net worth. I'll even take CenturyLink because bronze ain't bad, baby. They've been around since the 60s, and of course they didn't do the internet back then. They survived without it, analog style, 
phones with handlebar mustaches ready to pop a fisticuff your way should you even have the idea of the need of customer service. And after all these years, they have had enough of your shit and they are just looking for an excuse. You can hear it in their customer service robots. So calm, so measured, so ready to pounce, but you won't get yelled at, no. They may be lords of the electric wind, but they got rules, so they'll be polite. They'll make you hang, and they will be in- unintelligible before they leave you twisting in the wind. Startups are so ready to help you. Speaking to an actual person in a virtual office somewhere having tea like it's a Sunday. They're going to help you for sure. Fine, whatever. But that's a lackluster victory filled with a personable voice asking how your day is going before they even figure your shit out. And they leave you satisfied. They're not going to last a moment in the new Trumposphere where even the simplest request must be met with brute force. So if there's a choice, we must choose the elder gods for their vengeance will be swift, merciless, no pussy foot and sass backs need apply. The ass beating will be legendary, your name etched in stone. Plus, eventually, they're gonna get tired of beating on us puny mortals and then they'll start beating on each other. And how cool is that gonna be? The internet gods fighting each other, shark on shark, titan on titan, the gods of gods of gods. Gods that act the other gods to hold their beer. Gods that gave drunken advice to the gods that godded after them. God gods, yo. The gods of gods on gods. Why bother with pre-fighting? Street fighting. Sloppy slappies. And the battle of words and wit when we could get epic. Yeah, they say the internet startups are the dominant industry. But without the internet, they'd be nothing but annoying fads that dads from the suburbs are into, like homebrewing and drones. So who's the dominant one now? Take your baby fight to the streets and let the masters of the universe duke it out. Because when it's all said and done, either the last one standing is the one we'll all have to use so the commercials might finally stop, or they will crash into each other, negating each other's existence, and then we could just go online whenever we want, like it's Finland, and they invented death metal, so that's not gonna be lame. We are fragile creatures. Leave the fights to the gods. Thank you. This is some rip roar and opening statements. You ripped, you roared, you did them both. Before I ask you any specific questions, if either of you would like to take a moment to rebut anything your opponent said that's, that's burned a hole in your mind. Did, you, 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 you fully rebutted? It's all good then. Sono. Whatever revolutionary app, you, you focus on Kickstarter, whatever app gets us ready to, to revolt, it's going to immediately be plagued by a bunch of scab-ass competitors. Like, you know how Uber has Lyft, or a third one, probably. Um, <laughs> I couldn't think of any other than Lyft. Um, they're going to try to split the audience. How are you going to keep everyone united? I think the answer is in the question, Tom. Marketing. We need a good logo. Also, I think it'd be good, you know, if we, like... Did a maybe a faux event 
where we have all those women who said that it was okay about the pussy grabbing and tell them that they're going for, there's a big sale happening. <laughs> and then we kind of like trap them there. And, and uh, well, that's, that's a whole different plan. Ooh. <laughs> this is good. This is good. We'll come back to this. But he's talking about taking a beating from the internet. We don't want that. We want to rise up, rise together with good marketing and a good app. And we're going to take down this Trumpocalypse, right? I mean, that's the answer to your question. Marketing. That's how we're going to do it. Yeah, that'll do. Josh. So, uh, just yesterday, the airlines upped the violence even more. On a Japanese airline, there was a fist fight that was just between two customers. It wasn't even, wasn't even an employee involved. So employee on customer violence is not going to cut it anymore. It's passe. Mm. How are internet service companies going to force intra-customer murder? Uh, you guys know about the geek squad, right? So basically, you, you just bring them over, and, and they just pick fights with your neighbors for you. <laughs> and that's a service, right? I mean, it comes back to you, of course, because you're going to get your ass beat, too. But, like, you knew that was coming because that's what's happening right now. I mean, that's what we're arguing, right? What, who has the right to beat our asses? That's what we're talking about. I would love to rise up against any ass beater, any company that wishes to beat my ass. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just dealing with it, right? <laughs> so wouldn't you rather have a squad of geeks beating other people's asses than you having to get up off your couch and do it yourself? Yeah. I'm just saying. Thank you. Geek squad. <laughs> Very lazy, very lazy people. Not <laughs> so, no. you're, you're, you're taking a different tack. You're, 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 you're going for the revolution tack, which is great. But here's what I'm saying. Violence, well, that's Trump's brand. How are you going to make the cool, hip, startup, revolutionary violence look uh, hip and progressive? Got it. Let's do... Okay, so we're going to get those pussy-grabbing ladies who okayed that, right? And then we get them with this trick Kickstarter sick concert or whatever, right? And we're handing out the tote bags and the buttons and... Twist! Plot twist! It's a big fucking ayahuasca ceremony, right? And then we liberate the heart of the oppressor. Brothers and sisters, do you hear what I'm saying? And we will own the shit out of those dumb, pussy-grabbing okayers. And, the, and then that'll be it. So it's kind of like the anti-violence approach to violence, if you get what I'm saying. Okay? Okay. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Josh. ISPs have a huge advantage in beating their customers' asses because they know literally aspect of, literally every aspect of their identity. Right. What are some fun ways they can personalize the violent brutality they visit upon their customers? Well, I think uh, customer surveys are in order, right? I mean, you can do those on the internet, super easy. Uh, a, a grid system, uh, if you will. And then, um, uh, and then that personalizes the attack for you. So, like, I'm not a 
bat or a, a chain kind of guy. Like I, I'm kind of into like a full on uh, old west beer brawl kind of thing with breaking chairs and beer bottles and stuff. So like if I can skew, like it's kind of like Pottermore, right? Yeah. Like you kind of figure out what house you're in, except it's just like how you like to get your ass beat. And that's the internet, anyway. For a second there, I thought you were saying like that you're not like a bat, like this, like a like a flying bat, and I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> okay, I got two questions, and I want both you to answer. Yeah, you, you, wh whoever wants to answer first, just approach the dang mic. Yeah. There's un there was a United flight this month after the doctor David Dow was uh, beaten unconscious and dragged out, where a scorpion came out and stung a passenger. What I want to ask is, how are you going to follow that example and incorporate vicious animals into, into your violence? Uh, I actually think it's extraordinary that animals exist at all, still. <laughs> and if there are any, fucking let's get them on there. Tigers, bears, lions, whatever. Stick them on, stick them on the passengers. That sounds great. Some very good Facebook living will ensue, I'm sure. I would just get a legendary shadow ninja scorpion to be in the overhead compartment and just fall out and, and just kick someone's ass right there in front of everybody, laying down the gauntlet, and from there on out, Mortal Kombat is real. Good night. The last question I want you both to answer, since this all started with airlines and we're just sort of spinning off of that, let's go back to the source and answer finally what is the deal with airline food? Well, this is an age-old question and topic, Tom. We'll go ahead. What's the deal with any sort of packaged food? How much packaging do we really need? I want to know. I mean, how many plastic layers do I have to unwrap to get to that damn bread roll? Who is, who, is that a sanitation issue? Who are we protecting? I don't know. I don't know. I will say, though, my people are killing it. Anywhere where you can fly Air India, get yourself over to India, because there are some farmers with money that are ready to invest, baby. <laughs> Begging airline food. Air India, represent. I mean, it's just passive aggressivity uh, is the uh, technical word for it. Uh, it's, it's the act of being passive aggressive with your food. Like, it's a, it's a direct assault on you personally because they can't legally kick your ass yet. So what they do is they make it super difficult for you to eat anything or to get anything that you actually want, kind of like Starbucks, which is just shy of the muffin that you're looking for. Like, you want a blueberry muffin. They're like, here's a cranapple bran cake. You're like, mm. And it's the same deal on airlines. You're like, I would love food. They're like, it's kind of food. And you're like, well, I can't really argue because we're trapped here. So until it's just balls and bats and ass kicking, this is just their uh, revenge on you, the consumer, for even deigning to want to fly in their giant tubes. I don't like flying. In closing... Uh, I would like to say that I am really looking forward to getting together with each and every one of you, and we're going to brainstorm, we're going to knock this thing out. We're going to trick 
all those Trump supporters into, they're going to think they're going to go to some sort of like mud wrestling, deathmatch, violence, 2017, pussy grabbing, extravaganza. But oh no, little do they know that we'll be waiting there with all of our shamanic gig economy powers. And we will unlock, we will open the heart of the oppressor and unlock their minds. And that's... That's what's happening. That is the now. Let's do this. Who gives a shit what he's gonna say? He's gonna talk about. He's gonna talk about taking a beating from the internet. What the fuck? And that's my that's my debate closing statement. True, we get mad at the ma and pa and ma's cousin who's good with finances run pop-ups here and there every now and then, but after the email's clear, we're still cool. Of course we are, because they're our friends. Without them, there would be no shared rides, SpaceX, shoe delivery, vegan cupcakes, place to Pinterest your Halloween costume, or hilarious cat-related card games. Startups are on our side, so let's keep them cool. Because how do you think you're going to pass the time in between your monthly ass-beating from the forces of the internet during the customer service wars? Without startups, we would not have the fruits and gems games that we love. So hug a startup today, thank them for being helpful, and protect them as the reckoning.com begins. They are fragile, too. Oh, golly, what a debate. <laughs> that was, well, I think raucous is the word. So what are, you, what are y'all debating for? What's your prize? Well, it's just a skewer. That's pretty crappy. Why would anyone want that? I tricked you. There's a nice bauble on the other side. Yeah. This is from Etsy. Costs several cents. Mm. Yeah. And so how are we going to decide who wins the skewer? Well, it's going to be by applause. Mark, my blood relative, my brother, you are always the judge. So you are going to uh, determine who gets a louder applause when I ask the crowd to applaud. So if you think Sonal Agarwal was the winner of this debate, applaud now. <laughs> Delightful. If you think Josh Shagorin was the winner of this debate, Applaud now. <laughs> Impartial judge, who won? Yo, that's it. That's the whole skewer. It's the whole show. It's over. Thank you so much for coming out today. I've been Tom Harrison. We have some delightful merch. If you'd like to buy our stuff, uh, we are the first Wednesday of every month uh, at right here, Cafe Mustache. If you want to come back next month on June 7th, that's dope. Uh, If you don't, why? But also, we're recording this, and it's a podcast, so you could probably just listen to it later if you wanted. Uh, yeah, Erica, am I missing anything? I'm performing. Yeah, Erica's performing. Get up here and explain it your dang self. <laughs> Guys, I don't just leave weird voicemails or get people to hang up on me. 
I'm also a dope-ass poet. So I'm going to be the headliner at the Green Mill on Mother's Day. And if you grab a flyer, there's this mom. This mom is going to be there. That's my mom. And we have the same face. Just copy, control C, and then drag, and then control V. And it's the same face. And you can see it at the Green Mill on Mother's Day. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can always come to a live show the first Wednesday of every month at Cafe Mustache. Uh, you can also subscribe to this podcast uh, and rate and review us on iTunes, maybe. You know, that could be cool. Uh, if you want more information, maybe you want to be on the show, uh, you can email us at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in buying the Skewer Best of 2016 book, anthologizing the best writing on the show in 2016, also email that email address. We'll get, we'll get right to you. Thank you for listening. I've been Tom Harrison. Goodbye.